Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, we've got the Shift Notes team here again. So we're all spread out again. Mikey's in Auckland, Jan's still in Wellington. I've actually made it down to Wellington myself and we're interviewing um, a really cool guest today, which we're all really looking forward to interviewing. So I'll tell you a little bit about who he is and then we'll get into it. Essentially in the spirit of Mental Health Awareness Week, which is coming up um, and we'll be dropping this episode during Mental Health Week. Uh, we wanted to partner with someone who is an expert in this space to start having some conversations around mental health awareness and resilience and um, all those topics that are super relevant to hospitality and kind of pull something together so that everyone can have access and, you know, hear from someone who is very insightful and knowledgeable. Um, Personally, I'm really excited to have Peter on our show because not only is it an amazing opportunity to kind of provide knowledge to the rest of the hospitality industry, um, and it's, you know, something that most of us in hospitality don't often get a chance to do is to chat to a, 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 an expert in mental health. But it's also a really cool opportunity to introduce Peter to the hospital community because we will be partnering with him to do a couple of workshops around resilience and stress building, uh, sorry, stress management and all that kind of stuff in hospitality. So hopefully you really resonate with his story. He's got a really cool background um, and you learn a lot from this interview and hopefully you'll meet him in person in a couple of the upcoming Healthy Hospital workshops. So yeah, welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for waking up early to be with us. Good <laughs> <laughs> up, Peter. Welcome Hello, everybody. Hello, guys. <laughs> I, I have. A, I mean, you guys are hospital, right? So, so waking up early is uh, is is more of a burden on you than me, right? Should be. <laughs> <laughs> not easy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anyway, he's a dad. Me. He's always up. <laughs> yeah, he's not sleeping right now. I've been up for two hours. <laughs> there, you there you go. <laughs> Like he's a dad now, so he doesn't sleep anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a problem with parenting. It's okay. It's only for like, I don't know, 15 years, then you'll be all right. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, awesome, awesome to be here. Have a little chat about, uh, well, shit that goes on in our heads, which is kind of a passion area of mine and a very interesting space for people to be in, especially given it's uh, been an interesting year on that front for everybody, right? Mm, absolutely. And, um, and, and before we kind of kick off, it'd be awesome to just learn a little bit about who you are, kind of what your qualifications are, and how you actually got into the mental health space. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, at the end of the day, who the hell is this guy, right? So um, basically, I am a researching psychologist. So what I do is I work across universities, both here in New Zealand and uh, overseas, doing research mainly around things like personality, well-being, public health, uh, and, and, and lately, we're doing more, more, more targeted research in the resilience space specifically. Um, I also work professionally as a consulting psychologist, meaning I work in the, say, leadership training space, uh, resilience training space in various industries and things along those lines, trying to do a bit of coaching here and there for people, which, you know, either working with, working with individuals or groups, it doesn't matter. Basically, the idea is, you know, you're doing some high-performance work and things along those lines. Um, the way I ended up getting into this space really started a very long time ago. So I am from Serbia. So that's a black hole in Eastern Europe where um, we had a host of very interesting, how do we call it, local and domestic unrest situations while I was growing up, which, uh, which made for an interesting, well, context for growing up. Now, this isn't a sad sob story as all well. my childhood was torn, torn apart. It wasn't. I had a badass childhood. But... The idea is that in those types of situations, you learn very quickly that there are differences between people in terms of how they handle 
shit hitting the fan, especially when you have some serious shit hitting some serious fans, right? As you do when it comes to, well, being a civilian in a war-torn area, right? So you learn very, very quickly that, you know, some people handle this sort of stuff better than others. So for example, I remember when the air raid sirens would go on, I used to love listening to my neighbors just grab their shit and tumble down the staircase to you know, get into the basement and hunker up and all that. Whereas my family and I would just go out and, I don't know, play in the park because nothing you can do about it, right? So it got me really curious about what the differences are, which then finally led into my studying and then working in the field of psychology, right? Because at the end of the day, those differences are really all in our head. They're, they're, they're nowhere else, which, which is an interesting proposition, right? Yeah, so anyway, that's, that's kind of put me here. And uh, like I said, I still do a lot of research in this space. I still do a lot of applied work in this space and uh, try to kind of use it to help people where I can really. Yeah, that's awesome. Amazing. Cool. Um, I think yeah. yeah, your story was really fascinating hearing it yesterday for the first time. I think it gave me some perspective because I was like, I'm so stressed. I've got so much on. And then I was like, wait. I'm not in like any war torn area right now, so I should be very grateful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, a, a, a lot of people who, so, so I, I work a bit with, with people with military backgrounds and things like that, and they often tell you just very simple thing nobody's dying. Mm-hmm. Chill the fuck out, you know, because you do get stressed out about work, right? But at the end of the day, it's just passage of time. Nobody is, is really dying. So you're good to go. Anyway, now we're taking things to the extreme. But, but the idea is that some of these differences, you know, between people are really coming down to an application of skills of self-management, which basically means that you can take these things and teach people to apply them in any uh, area of, or, or, of life, right? You don't have to be in a worn, torn area to actually experience this or to learn this at all. In fact, nobody should be there, let's be honest, right? But you can take these skills, practice them, and, and develop your own self-management and resilience from that point. Uh, that's uh, yeah, that's really that's really interesting actually, and um, that that kind of ties us into like our first topic actually. It's really nice to put. Um, the t- the topic is idea is based around sort of like the whole industry and sort of like other industry perspectives, so not just from hospitality. Um, there, there are obviously many industries that involve shift work, and some are under huge amounts of pressure worldwide. Uh, we're thinking about doctors and nurses who work uh, shifts over time and practic- uh, particularly now have to deal with incredible pressure from the pandemic. Um, no doubt you've worked with many different industries throughout your career. Uh, what are some of the things that we could learn um, for, uh, from a hospitality um, industry perspective uh, from other shift work industries in terms of handling stress and mental health? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like HOSPO is... is notoriously bad when it comes to when it comes to health management right i mean if you think about it you have shift work you have high pressure you have shift work usually you know the horrifying nighttime shift shift work bunched towards the end of the week and it all comes together hits you at once and uh, that's not really a recipe for for you know good health promotion and things like that right so if we're thinking specifically of shift work you, you, you immediately think right now, as you said, of you know, doctors and nurses who work long shift hours. They have a, little, a very short amount of time between shifts and things along those lines. And the reality is that globally, the medical field, at least you know, in, in, in the 
forward-facing doctors and, and nurses, they're, they're not actually doing all that much better than, than for example, hospital or some of the other shift-oriented uh, shift industries. So, for example, until very recently, and I think in the States, you quite frequently had doctors working, you know, 130-hour weeks and doing 36-hour shifts and having less than eight hours between shifts and things along those lines, which it, it really messes with a whole lot of things, starting with sleep for example. And I think right now we all know how much of a detriment sleep deprivation really makes to, to both our health as well as to our decisions we make and how, more, how much more error prone we are with just a little bit of sleep deprivation, right? Now, New Zealand has actually introduced quite, quite recently, in, in, in fairly recently in, on the grand scheme of things, a, like a limitation to how many hours doctors can work in any given shift. So for example, right now in the States, I, I believe the maximum legal shift a doctor can work is 24 hours, which is well beyond the, the safety range, if you will. Whereas in New Zealand, it's 16, which is still not great, but it's, it's a little bit better, right? So uh, and I also think there are some limits in terms of uh, the time that has to go by between ending a shift and starting another. And I think in the States it's 10 hours, which again, not all that much time. And I forget what it is in New Zealand, but there are, there are ways to regulate these things, you know, enforce some regulations. And, and, and I guess, I guess it's easier, easier. It's the motivation to do it is, is more, obvious in the medical field, right? Because, for example, the negative effects of all being overwhelmed by various poorly organized shift work structures, uh, the, the negative effects in the medical field are catastrophic, right? You make a mistake, you, 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 well, people die or end up permanently damaged or something along those lines. Whereas I don't think people see that as much in the hospital field, right? However, the negative effects on the people working in hospital are still the same, right? Mm -hmm. Those yeah. effects of sleep deprivation, night in, night out, week in, week out, month in, month out, are still there. So the, it, it, this idea of shift work being an issue is, is, is familiar across a number of, number of industries. I mean, think of your taxi drivers as well, for example, right? We don't think of that, but they actually have... Uh, in, in European countries, I know for sure that they have limitations for how many hours they can spend behind the wheel. And I think they have them in New Zealand as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, you know, you spend too much time working, you start making errors. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's one of those like really tricky ones with hospitality, right? Like, uh, one of the things I just want to say about this um, series that we're doing is that it's not just something that we want to give to the employees, um, to the shift workers, but it's also sort of like perspective for the employers and mm -hmm. beyond the managers. And I think um, the big question is just like, could something like what's happening with the, the medical industry where you have a capped amount of hours, do you think that's something that could be related to in hospitality, like obviously it'd be something to do with the rostering and how the owners are structuring this sort of like the business, but also uh, the way that staff work. Do you think it's something that's possible? Would it well, make I a mean, difference as well? <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I mean, it comes down to, to your guys' experience really, like how many people and how frequently actually, you know, work those long shifts and work shifts where you have, you know, very little time, you know, maybe just 10 or nine hours between shifts. Like how often does that, then, does that happen? Yeah. I, would, I would expect often, right? Yeah. Very often. I think the hard, the hard thing probably with that as well is, well, one of the hardest things is what you do after the shift. 
Yeah. Um, if you only have an eight to 10 hour gap, how do you treat that eight to 10 hour gap? Because like you said, if you've got people in the medical industry doing 12 to 24 hour shifts, they probably do go home and fall asleep for eight hours. Whereas if, you know, I know when I was a young bartender, but I know a lot of people in hospitality probably finish a 16 hour shift and definitely have a couple of drinks or yeah. go and hang out or even do the silly thing where we sit and watch a movie and you know, like it's, yeah, it, it's the care. Well, yeah, I think it's just one of those funny ones where like you do those long shifts and then you're like, Oh, thank God I'm going to sleep so well. And then you yeah. get to that last minute of your shift and you're just like, boom, like, Oh God, I can't sleep now. Just like, yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> Well, yeah, and there's no way that you can sleep. Like, let's be honest. What do you do when you work a, a long shift, right? You, after maybe, I don't know, after seven hours, you start drinking a whole lot of coffee or Red Bull or V, for example. Holy shit, V is horrifying. Sorry, V. But it's just, it's just, oh, my God. Anyway, so, right? And then you're eating whatever, whatever is left in the kitchen, which is usually some fries. And if you're lucky, maybe a burger. <clears throat> highly unlikely right so you're pounding this stuff down then you wrap up at 3 a.m and there's no way you're going to sleep right like your, your body at that point isn't isn't ready to chill out like you need a bit of time to unwind and then you go out and unwind right but that leaves you with only a few hours to recover before your next shift and then you can see you know how you if you do that day after day the the, the likelihood of errors the likelihood of injuries injuries in the kitchen injuries uh, front uh, in the front in the bar the mistakes being made it, it just goes up exponentially which i guess why it's Im important for for the owners operators managers to actually be aware of this and try to work out as you said john try to work out ways of managing maybe managing rostering structures for example from from a, from a more strategic perspective you know now of course i guess there are limitations here in in the in the hospital industry with the the tendency to be frequently understaffed for example so the rostering tends to be a little bit tricky uh, but it is something that really needs to be be looked at quite seriously by people who do this from a more strategic perspective, you know, limiting the length of shifts, absolutely, but also making sure that there is adequate time between shifts with, you know, the, the, the days off, the time to actually unwind, sleep, recover, and then come back rather than just basically sleep for three hours and then open the morning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely... Yeah, like Mikey said, I think we've all we've all done those uh, crazy shifts where we just kind of go home for a few hours and then come back. But yeah, um, hospitality obviously has quite a lot of ties in in similar ways with so many different industries, right? And something that I wanted to kind of pick your brain with is um, how it can be similar to the sports industry. So um, with professional athletes, you've got them traveling quite a lot during the season. Um, you've got them always on the go and even off season, always training and kind of working quite hard. And with um, a hospitality industry, you can find yourself like, um, especially when you move into a role of like sales or when you move into a role of like uh, ambassador work, um, you find that a lot of ambassadors are like always traveling. Like I've got a lot of friends that work around the world as global ambassadors and they're constantly on the go. Like they sometimes they have 200 days out of the year that they're on the road and then they have the rest at home, you know? Um, is there any sort of like insight that you can give us that maybe you've worked with sports, elite sports um, people that uh, you've learned that could be great for us to kind of take in? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, first things first, you're absolutely right in terms of 
the the sort of the elite sports industry or the elite sport field uh, having some similar um, challenges. So, for example, when it comes to sleep and consistency thereof, especially in the on-season uh, period, right, you're ending up traveling from game to game or from event to event. You're ending up uh, being consistently jet-lagged if you're an international athlete. As you said, if you're an international ambassador, those 200 days, you're changing countries, you're changing time zones. Uh, and, and, and that sort of adaptation is, is uh, quite difficult. And it's especially difficult when at the end of it, or you know, once you land in a, in a country which is plus 10 hours from where you started, you have to perform at a high level and things along those lines. And the cool thing is that recently, uh, and, and recently there's been a bit of work, more structured work going on around uh, being a bit more creative with managing sleep structures. Uh, when it comes to, say, professional athletic teams. So, you know, testing things like uh, what they call polyphasic sleep patterns, which basically means sleeping more periods in 24 hours than just one, uh, which would be like uh, sleeping during the night. So, for example, most of us traditionally sleep in one chunk of time, whereas there are certain ways to break it up. And I mean, there are people who will tell you more about this than I can. Uh, and I think uh, the Healthy Hospital program actually offers a little bit of insights around how you can manage these sort of weekly sleep disturbances. Because let's, let's be honest, like if you work in hospital and if you do, most people working in hospital end up effectively jet lagged at least once a week, right? If you work a couple of shifts back to back on the weekend, that's it. Like you're you're definitely jet lagged. So learning some ways of managing your sleep scheduling around that space to, to allow you to essentially move through that jet lag period with a little less pain, kind of like is being done with the more um, elite athletic teams uh, is, is, is the way to go. And, and as I said, I think the healthy hospital has a nice little component within the sleep structure, within the sleep workshop that gives you a sense around how you might be able to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's one of one of those ones as well in hospitality where, like, you work a full week and then your first day off, you're just like dead to the world for twelve hours. Of course, right? (laughs) Of course. I mean, to be honest, any sort of night-focused work is likely to be very difficult on most people's systems, and uh, and and once you end up doing that frequently, and I guess the extra problem with hospital is that you don't work night shifts or graveyard shifts every day, right? So, for example, you might work couple of day shifts during the early parts of the week and then the weekend comes you're gradually moving towards the night shifts and they get longer and things along those lines so you don't even have the consistency of working the same uh the same graveyard shift all the time right yeah yeah double shifts yeah, they yeah. Kill right. end of the week you do double and yeah Massive. I mean, it's all, it's all hands on deck, right? Come yep. Friday, Saturday, like it's everybody's out there. So you're pulling double shifts. And then, as you said, come Sunday or Monday or whatever your day off is, that's it. You are, you're crashed. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting, though, to consider that there are industries who are based on health and performing at peak performance who have to deal with similar challenges. Yeah. So it's like interesting to think that there are actually ways through all the mm-hmm. travel or the different time zone kind of sleeping. Um, so there are ways to handle it, which is, which is heartening to hear. <laughs> yeah. 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 There definitely are ways, ways to handle it. But if you think about it, in order to handle that, you need to, you need to step beyond what we have evolved to do. So we have all evolved to sleep during the night and be awake during the day. Like that's it. And that's kind of the optimal state for the vast majority of people. There are a few freaks, absolutely. And 
go for it, do what you do what you want to do. But most of us will work best in that sort of sleep at night, awake during the day type of situation, right? And if if you want to then structure, maybe structured around moving yourself out of that space and maintain that sort of peak performance, it, it requires a whole lot of work. Yeah. It's doable. It's absolutely doable, but it's uh, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, yeah, like it's a high-pressure environment being in hospitality. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you find yourself like under the pump, like whether you're cooking food, whether you have 10 tables, whether you have three deep at the bar, it's quite a high-pressure environment. Um, and I, I, I guess you, you spoke about it briefly earlier, but um, you've done a little bit of work with the military and that is also quite a high-pressure environment. Um, is there anything that you've learned with working with them that you could sort of like tips of how we could deal with that side of that pressure? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing, and we're not going to do, go into too much detail here, but the interesting thing with the, with the military psych framework in the recent years is how quickly it is moving towards training skills around personal or, or self-management uh, along the lines of things that we might call mindfulness, if you will. Uh, you're actually getting an uptake in training, mindfulness, self-awareness, and things along those lines in, in various military organizations around the world. I think there's actually a really cool mindfulness course that the UK Army has just thrown out to the public. So you can just jump on their website and just go through their sort of intro course. Uh, so you're actually getting an uptake in, in a serious uptake in paying a lot of attention to our own intrapersonal management skills, uh, which, which is quite interesting. Now, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that if you're stepping into a sort of a professional military framework, it becomes your job to train this, right? It's part of your job description to, I don't know, on Tuesday and Thursday at 1 p.m., you sit down for a mindfulness training session or whatever you might call it right? Whereas if you're sitting in hospo, nobody's going to come and force you to do that. It's not in your job description, right? Nobody's going to come, yeah, okay, this, this shift we are doing, we, we are training stress management techniques, or we are training communication techniques, or we are training uh, levels of awareness type of stuff, right? Nobody will force you to do this. And at the end of the day, the, the thing to take away is that it becomes your responsibility, really, to train yourself in this, or to yeah. look for resources or to find some support around it, you know? Mm. I think there is some sectors in the hospitality industry that do kind of focus a little bit on, mm-hmm. on that kind of perspective. Often it's uh, hotels and bigger groups where they, they have that kind of time and essentially conference and facilities. Money. But yeah, well, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. It's not yeah, pulling people along for a mindfulness uh, shift would actually probably be quite popular. But yeah. Um, but it probably wouldn't happen, no. Yeah, well, I think, I think the other thing is, is like, I think the reason I find that point so interesting is because it's the military's, you know, um, in, you know, introducing mindfulness or using that as a practice to deal with, like, high-pressure situations far beyond what we would ever imagine in hospitality. And it's, and I can imagine that if you said to most, I don't know, bartenders or chefs, they'd be like, what mindfulness? Like, what a waste of time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, mindfulness... And, and, and because it goes along with things like meditation and all of that, it all suffers from a serious branding problems. And I, I blame iPhone selfie filters for that, if we're to be honest. Like the, 
there is a general there's a general impression that when you say things like mindfulness you're imagining a chick sitting on a beach at sunset you know the legs cross. there you go yeah all of that sort of shit right which which really makes it kind of repulsive to a whole lot of people especially people in who, who belong to cultures where you just toughed the fuck out right yeah. it, it it doesn't sound all that appealing but the reality is that all we're talking about with mindfulness is we're talking about our our ability to manage ourselves that's kind of all it is right it's not about it's not really about finding enlightenment purpose and peace in the world and all that sort of stuff it might come sure uh, but but training yourself in mindfulness you're actually training your own self awareness and your own self control and 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 the, the the really the key here is that your self control and your ability to be yourself that's what it comes down to right be yourself in 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 a way that isn't controlled by external situations such as you know having an asshole yelling at you at the bar while you're trying to pour them a beer or something along those lines right uh, being able to not let yourself be influenced or controlled by that is is kind of the key at the end of the day to to your stress management to your self management to your freedom to your self esteem and that's all mindfulness is is learning to be aware of what's happening inside your head and inside your body when you're not paying attention right mm-hmm. and then learning to kind of go with that and 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 control some aspects of it to to your advantage basically so, so, so you see what I mean? Like if you say, you know, mindfulness by itself is just, it, it sounds like a fluffy word, but really, <laughs> really, it's, it's, it's quite a serious thing. Which it's is hard. Really, it is definitely hard, yeah. but it's a very, very serious thing. Yeah. And, and, and that's what we tend to refer to as, you know, mental training or mental fitness or something along those lines, just because, well, filters make things not all that cute mm. anyway yeah <laughs> which, which yeah. really relates to hospitality it's like you've got to mentally prepare yourself just the moment that you're walking through that door you don't know what you're getting yourself into but you have uh, some sort of understanding right which um yeah. yeah mindfulness works so well in hospitality because yeah it's about looking after yourself and then looking after the rest of the people as well but every every chef's completely different, right? Exactly. Every person that you deal with is completely different. So you've got you have a set of tools in, in your head that you're like, wow. And if somebody does rub you, just like the example you said before, if somebody does rub you up the wrong way, where they click at you or yell at you for a beer, you you've got to be able to kind of hold it together and and keep keep the show going, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, My God, the clicking, right? The clicking, Jesus. It's just the, <laughs> the most horrifying thing to do is just do the kind of finger thing. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, yeah beer. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, waving money is the worst. The waving money was like, yeah, busy bars, people wave money. We just used to take it, yeah, chuck it in your apron and tell them you're not a stripper. <laughs> Outrageous. Um, I do want to say one really quick point before I go on to um, the next question. And and I really like the way that you use the word like mental training, because Mm -hmm. I think that often we think about like, oh, we want to get physically strong. So we're going to go to the gym and we're going to train and like, you know, we're okay with that. But we don't realize that to build mental strength as well, like requires the same thing. It requires time and training and actually sitting down and doing the work. And I think in hospitality, we have a lot of conversations going around about um, you know, how do we, you know, there's a, obviously there's, you know, uh, mental health is an issue in hospitality. So like, how can we actually start training ourselves and putting in that work to mm-hmm. make sure we've got, you know. 
Um, but yeah, anyways, that's a little side note. I think we'll talk more about the individual down the line. But um, one thing I did want to ask you about is to talk a little bit uh, about teams and team mentality and specifically just like one or two things for owners and managers. So um, would you have anything that you would offer as a piece of advice on how to foster strong mental fitness within teams if there's an owner or a manager who's looking to improve that within their own venue? Mm-hmm. Well, so, so as an owner or a manager or owner of multiple venues or something like that, there is actually a lot of responsibility on you uh, it, to, to, to provide an environment and in this case, to provide, well, training for people to be able to maintain their own mental health, physical health, their own just health and well-being in general. And it's not only a, like a moral responsibility, if you will, it's, it's also responsibility towards your business, right? Because it, as, as we said, it's, as these sort of pressures pile on, the likelihood of mistakes go up, the likelihood of absenteeism go, goes up, the likelihood of just turnover, losing stuff goes up. Uh, that's not something you want, really, right? You are, at the end of the day, losing money, and hospital is a tight margin industry anyway, right? So it does come down to being structured around so around this sort of stuff. So we already talked about, I think, like uh, being a bit more strategic with your rostering uh, in order to afford people the space uh, to, you know, not over, no, not pull those horrifying double shifts all the time, not have, you know, six hours between shifts and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but another thing that is also really, really important is providing some space for education and, and learning and understanding in this space, right? Because I think people benefit a lot from just getting a basic understanding of how their body and how their mind works, how it is affected by stress, by nutrition, by what we eat, you know, what we eat, what we drink, uh, as well as by things like, you know, sleep and, uh, you know, having those double shifts and things like that, right? It's, it's massively important. I think Healthy Hospital is a, is a good space to start learning those things, right? But beyond that, so for example, as, as a manager, you can start looking at things like what it is that your people actually eat when they pull a double shift, right? Very few will sit down with a good hearty meal, you know, rather you will end up grabbing, as we said, you know, just what's in the kitchen, chips and things along those lines, which don't do you any good <laughs> and that's the thing like they, they will they will keep you fueled for a little while but um they have kind of immediate effects on your physical and psychological well-being you know within about 90 minutes of eating a pile of sugar you will end up crashing as we all do and in adults those kind of crashes don't look like showing a tantrum but you know in a way they do look like throwing a tantrum because you end up getting a bit more stressed a bit more angry a bit more irritable a bit more scared a bit more anxious and then all of a sudden what you need to do is grab a bit more of that sugar and on and on and on you go right it's not great so looking at nutrition and staff meals around uh, around these sorts of shifts and your staff is very important rostering instructions such that you can have some actual break times for people is actually hugely important. Like the best way to deal with stress and pressure is if you can find a space to just detach and step away from it for a minute or two. Uh, so, you know, being able to take a break in your double shift is actually hugely important. A lot, a lot of people in hospital actually don't, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you may go out to try to have a smoke, but then you're ending up grabbing glasses and people are coming to you because they've seen you behind the bar. So they're asking you this and that. And it's, just, it's never ending, right? Yeah. So offering that sort of stuff. And then there's that whole field of 
sort of leadership and communication and self-management type of training, right? Which seems to be lacking in, in, in the hospital industry as far as I'm noticed. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And we kind of had a little bit of a discussion about this yesterday, but um, we were chatting about like the importance of communication. And I think one of the big things in hospitality is that as a young, like oftentimes it's very, you know, people who are very young who kind of get thrown into management positions and uh, are never given the skills they really need to handle some of the tougher conversations within hospitality. And I just think back to my own days where I would manage, you know, and I just think about some of the situations I had to deal with or the conversations I had to have. And I was like, I never, I never knew how to, I was never taught how to handle those things. And then now I've gone into corporate and I'm getting all these like coaching trainings and leadership trainings and uh, having those tough conversation trainings and I just think to myself like this is the stuff that I needed you know a couple of years ago when I was dealing with these like like really high stress uh, or confrontational situations so um yeah <laughs> I think that yeah. piece is huge yeah, I think it's one of those ones as well that it just goes further than just the owners giving you the tools of how to manage people. It's like mm. New Zealand's so focused on the sale of Liquor Act and what we do when we are serving people. And, you know, if you if you serve a drunk person, you're told, like, you're told, first of all, not to serve a drunk person. But if you do, you're given a massive fine. But yet <laughs> the government isn't giving us the tools to be like, well, what do we do when someone has a mental breakdown? You know, and I think it could be one of those ones that later down the line, that might be worth a conversation. We're like, why, why doesn't the government just give us sort of like basic training on like how to deal with people? And because um, essentially what you're given as a qualification is a manager certificate, but you're not being told how to manage people. Yeah, the way I understand it, really, getting a duty manager certificate, you're basically taught how to manage the Liquor Sales Act, right? And that's, that's it. it. That's kind yeah. of the extent of it, right? Mm. And then, as you said, Laurie, as, as, as a quite a young person in hospital, you get thrown into a managerial position where you quickly find out that you're having to manage far more than just the sales of Liquor Act. In fact, that's like the, the smallest proportion of it. You're having to manage your staff. You're having to manage your customers and things along those lines. And there's nobody providing, I mean, outside of those little spots, as you said, Mikey, you go into a more corporate hospital situation, like in the hotel industry, for example, you may get some of this training because you are, you're facing different types of clients, if we're to be yeah. honest. But you go into the majority of hospital, you are finding yourself in situations where you really need these skills and nobody's teaching you. <laughs> nobody's yeah. putting you through that training. And this is very simple stuff we're talking about. You know, we're just talking about basic management and basic communication, basic leadership training. For example, learning how to recognize stress in yourself and in others is hugely important, right? So learning how to recognize that your staff members are, are perhaps maybe under a bit more stress than they realize, like learning to notice those symptoms of, you know, this is a person who is normally okay, a bit of humor, and then you can learn and you can realize that once those people start becoming a bit more sarcastic than they normally are, you're like, okay, you're under a bit of stress. Then when they start becoming a little bit more angry than they normally are, oh, okay, now we got to talk, right? Learn to recognize these things. Mm -hmm. Learning basic communication approaches, mm -hmm. you know, whereby you can make sure, so go almost through a system, making sure that people feel heard, listened to, involved. And then all of a sudden, those problems that seem insurmountable become more solvable, right? It's a basic, basic skills uh, that just go a long, long way. As I'm sure, Laurie, you've noticed now that you kind of move into corporate, you're like, holy crap, okay, you apply this and guess what? Magically things work. 
And it's amazing. <laughs> like there's so much interesting, fascinating stuff around communication. And absolutely. And I think it's also something that outwardly, if you hear, oh, there's a communication workshop, most people would be like, I don't need to learn how to communicate. I don't but it's so important. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Like we all think we don't need it. But think about the last time you tried to communicate something complex when you were under pressure, like in the middle of an argument of a properly heated argument, right? It doesn't work. So <laughs> the thing is, you are in hospital, you're in hospital, like on, on, on shift in the field, effectively, you're under high amounts of pressure, right? And when you're dealing with problems, be it staff or client problems, you're dealing with them in, in pressurized situations. And this is where you need to just know things that aren't, we're not talking about finesse. We're not talking about nuance of, of, I don't know, oh, I'm a smooth talker or whatever. We're not talking about, you know, sitting in a legal courtroom. We're just talking about very blunt force things when it comes to managing these types of situations. Which, which work, that's the whole point, right? If you are under pressure, if you are in a stressed situation, go for the fucking hammer, right? <laughs> Just go for the blunt force and then say, right, empathy, I have listened to you. And then we go from there, right? I have involved you in, in this decision, bang, next one, and moving on in that direction, right? It's, it's, it's as I said, these are simple things that can be provided for people. And uh, a hospital, I mean, especially front, front of staff or, 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 or in the field type of hospital work desperately needs it. Mm. I think it's very, there's very much a culture of being thrown, thrown in the deep end and just expected to be, to learn on the job as I'm sure all three of us probably did in our, our careers. And, and it's kind of like, it, it sounds horrible, but I, I feel like often it's survival of the fittest or you get pulled in and it's like, yeah, but I don't know. I haven't been given the tools to be able to actually actually do that i guess the other thing you mentioned just then is the fact that it, it is very case by case and dealing with these situations we deal with them all the time when some guy walks up to the bar and asks us about said whiskey on the back bar those are the high intensity situations that you have to put a load of information across in the simplest manner mm-hmm. for, for somebody to understand like those are the situations that we should be worrying about with that kind of thing as opposed to having to deal with general day-to-day exactly behind the exactly. bar right yeah, that, so, that, that, like, that, that, fake that it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really. Oh. Is. Um, yeah. So I've just got two more questions for you before I kind of hand over to Mikey. And um, the first is just a little question for you from your opinion. Do you think that there's anything culturally within the hospitality industry that is probably contributing to our mental health challenges? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know about the mental health challenges, but not making life easier for yourself is, is definitely the way to go here, right? Then we fake it till you make it and just tough it out or, you know, she'll be a right sort of an approach. Um, here's the thing, like that approach will definitely help you on the night, especially if, there, if, if you're working with a team on the shift, we're just toughing it out for the double shift on a Friday. But in the long run, it, it, it means that you don't end up giving yourself the space to recover. You don't end up giving yourself the skills to handle those extreme situations. Like you end up missing out on a lot of things, which then pile up, right? So I have nothing against the tough it out sort of a mentality, far from it. And if we're to be honest, it's one of the kind of, well, it's one of the more attractive things for working in hospital is really the culture and the community, right? Because let's be honest, you're living a life completely different to all the other normal people, right? You know, you work those double shifts, you wrap it up. And then, as you said, Mikey, you don't go straight to sleep. You get your crew. And then if you're, if you're in Auckland, they're 
at least from what I remember we used to, you just go to Grand Central because it's open and you stay there until six. And then you hope that Macker's is open so you can grab some fries and you're there with your crew and you're all toughing it out, right? And that's, that's a, an amazingly beneficial thing because you have a very important thing there, which is social connection, right? But at the same time, that stuff will lead to some seriously negative effects for individuals and for businesses because the negative effects of that will pile on, right? Because you will not be paying attention to things like your sleep as much. You will not be paying attention to things like what you eat and drink as much. You will not be paying attention to minding your mind and being mindful and all that sort of stuff, not nearly as much as you should, right? And then down the line, you end up with issues, right? So it's an, it's, it's, it's a, Interesting little balance. Nobody's really saying that, um, well, I'm not saying that, definitely not saying that the culture around hospital and hospital workers is bad. It isn't, but it has to be balanced. And I think really it comes down to, to education here, to, to, to getting curious and learning about this sort of stuff and understanding how your mind, how your body work, how they're affected and how to achieve that balance. That's kind of the way I'd go about it. That's so such a good way to put it. Um, and, and that kind of leads me to the last kind of question here for you is um, just a little quick chat about burnout in our industry. So kind of what is it? Why does it happen? Um, and like, can we do things to avoid reaching that burnout point? So let me t- ask you three. So have you, have you experienced sort of within, within your work, how have you experienced burnout? Overwhelmed. <laughs> wow. Overwhelmed. Yeah. 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 yeah I think so. Breakdown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think I've personally ever had uh, a, a breakdown as such, but very much like you, f- you feel after long periods of time of huge shifts and huge, huge weeks, it's, it's a, uh, it's a relief, but it's also kind of like a mm-hmm. left in an empty, empty kind mm-hmm. of space. Right. Mm-hmm. And anxiety, like a constant yeah. anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think personally for me, the burnout thing ends up being this whole stress level mm-hmm. uh, and this whole constant. Con- constant worry about what's actually going on if you're not there. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that, that's kind of the point, really, because burnout really, especially in this industry, really comes down to stress and stress management. So there's a little analogy that, that people use sometimes. So imagine you have a bucket, right? And that bucket is sitting underneath a tap and the tap is always running. And out of the tap, instead of water, you're ending up with all sorts of stressful shit. So worries about, you know, what's going on on your shift, being overwhelmed by the, just the sheer amount of work, um, unpredictability of life and work in general, um, that sort of um, feeling of being overwhelmed and not having all that much control. Like all of this stuff is just piling into your bucket along with all of your personal stuff like family and relationship issues, uh, COVID right now, um, just general money issues, life issues, health issues. All of that is kind of, you know, jumping in, piling into your bucket. And then some people have bigger buckets, meaning they can take more. Other people have smaller buckets, meaning they can take less, but everybody has a bucket and everybody's bucket is constantly being filled with shit, right? That's, that's the fact of life. And it's a special effect of this type of work, right? That's kind of it. As you said, Mike, like you constantly under some kind of pressure, every, every shift is different, meaning you're always not really able to predict what's going to happen. So you're having to adapt to things along those lines. And what we can do, and which is what, some people don't do or don't do as well is we can start drilling holes in the bucket, 
right? And this is where all of this sort of training stuff that we've talked about so far comes in, right? You drill holes in the bucket. So one big hole in the bucket is the community aspect when it comes to the hospital industry, right? Being able to talk with people who are like-minded about issues, being able to vent about them really helps. But then there are also other, you know, more, more structured holes we can drill, like self-management. So managing our own stress, uh, learning to prioritize, so learning to focus on those things that we can control rather than the things that we cannot control, taking the time to acknowledge our stress and actually be aware that it's happening rather than we are just crazy, right? Then a lot of time, in a lot of cases, when we're under stress, we just think that we are, well, not handling life. No, you're not, not handling life. You're just under stress, and that is okay. That's a big hole that you can drill in your bucket, and then shit will just pour out. So that's the whole idea. Like that, that's the idea of burnout is essentially not having enough holes in your shit bucket. Drill <laughs> more holes. <laughs> that's kind of the way to go. That's one word for that. <laughs> I like it. Cool. Well, so, so we've covered quite a bit on understanding, I guess, community aspects and, and the team aspects on this, but um, we wanted to cover a little bit more of how we can, I guess, support ourselves um, in this kind of situation, maybe if there's no form of means to, to have it throughout your community or your team. Um, so I guess, where do we start? Um, do, do you have any kind of, I, I mean, maybe some just to, to start with some top tips on how you could kind of fortify or take steps to improve your personal mental health maybe yeah maybe mm -hmm. some key tips mm -hmm. so the first thing for a lot of people in, in in most industry but especially hospital in especially you know in the field hospital is to realize that this is your responsibility uh it, it's it's obviously not going to be somebody else's like it really is yours um meaning that it's all on you and then the second step really is, is to allow yourself, and I think this is a step which is overlooked by a lot of people who talk about resilience and self-management and things like that. And it's a simple, 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 crucial aspect, which is be curious about yourself. That's kind of the most important thing, right? All of this supporting your own mental health starts from self-understanding and self-awareness. And the only way you can actually do that is to chill out and be curious about it, right? Your mind is a really, really interesting thing. Start paying attention to how much time you spend in autopilot, right? I think we're all familiar with this whole idea, especially at the end of a shift. Man, you know, I used to, I remember when I worked hospital, you wrap up your shift, you wrap up your grand central thing, you get on your bike, you get home, you wake up, you have no fucking clue how you got there because you're on autopilot, right? So you can take that to life in general and, and, and start paying attention to how much of your life is just by habit, right? Because your mind does things that you're not aware of. It just works in the background doing whatever it wants to do. And, and I, I, like to, I like to generally kind of paint the picture with the, in this way, right? Your, your consciousness, your awareness of life is, is like a movie, and what I mean by that is that there's a whole lot of editing going on behind the scenes that you don't get to see. You don't even know that it's there. And if the movie's done well, you won't even notice that it's being edited as all hell, right? And it's all happening in there. So allow yourself the space to get curious about it, to pay attention, to well, learn about it, right? It all starts with understanding. And then from that point onwards, you can start you know, noticing the patterns of what your mind does and start learning to play with them and to control them. But really start by that, you know, looking for self-awareness. 
Yeah. That would be my first port of call, really. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of like quick to take better responsibility for yourself is, is essentially questioning how, how you go about your usual, you know, like, like we do, I, I guess probably perfect example for me is in the bar industry, you do certain things because you've been taught in a certain way. Uh, and it's like, yeah, but why, why do I do this? Why does the ice have to be frozen at this temperature? So I guess questioning your format and your autopilot yeah. And, and your method of madness is, is like the perfect no method kind of, of madness. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Finding, finding whatever methods going on in your madness. Yeah. And I find that, I find that point really interesting as well, because I think in hospitality, there's a lot of stuff we can't control. Right. And there's a lot of stress and we can get bogged in on that stuff that we mm-hmm. can't control, but it's like, well, we want to discuss as an industry, everyone's talking about, you know, we need to discuss mental health more, but it's like, okay, well, what are we doing personally to make sure we're like exactly. drilling, drilling the holes in the shit bucket, like, as you said <laughs> before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially as you said, in this industry, like it really is down to you. Right. And, and I mean, we are all, especially this year in, in an uncertainty framework. Right. And, and, if you take the hospital industry, I think, I, I think from what I've kind of seen and read is that the uncertainty is kind of even heightened, right? Because there's less money coming in right now in Auckland, we're at 2.5, meaning that, uh, I don't know, I have no idea what that actually looks like in the field. I haven't been to a bar in a very long time because of this, right? I can imagine many people haven't. I can have to imagine you're facing a lot of unhappy people. I can imagine a lot of people are facing a lot of uncertainty about their jobs and all that sort of stuff, right? And I think this is a perfect training ground for us to train our own minds, right? Because here you can start looking at what it is that your mind does uh, when faced with this sort of un- uncertainty. So the first thing it does, is just quite obvious. Well, it's not obvious. It's obvious when I say it, which is it spends a lot of time thinking about the future, right? <laughs> and uh, that's not a good place to be. Uh, spending too much time in, in, in the future is not a good place to be because we cannot predict it, meaning that we will be coming up with all sorts of thoughts and ideas in terms of what it should be and uh, thinking that things should be certain ways. Again, not a good place to be. Just like spending too much time in the past isn't a great place to be, right? But until you pay attention, you won't notice that this is what your mind does, right? It's, it's kind of programmed to think ahead. So when you're facing a situation like we're facing right now, which will just go forward and try to predict what is actually going to happen or what might happen, which is just a bad thing to do. So spotting these sorts of patterns is up to you, right? So taking the time to learn what these patterns might be, when they might happen. They tend to happen often when you're under stress or under pressure. So taking the time to learn these sorts of things and then start learning techniques to dial it back, right? So when you find yourself spending too much time projecting what COVID is going to do to your life for the next six years, whereby you will end up living on the street with God knows what, maybe dial it back a little bit. (laughs) You know, what's happening right now? What can you control right now? That's kind of the trick, right? Because you can't control what happens out there. Nobody can. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, I, I guess you could probably liken that to, uh, at the moment, I suppose a lot of people's minds are in that place and you mm-hmm. could probably liken that to the high stress environment behind the bar or, or in a restaurant. Um, yeah. Is there anything we should know about stress in, in our industry in that, in that regard? Is there, is there specific ways to deal with it? Um, and, and on top of that, like, can stress actually be a good thing? So I like that question because I, I am, well, sometimes I'm a firm believer. The data, the science actually tells us the stress is actually an amazingly good thing, 
right? So if we look at stress of what it is, it is simply a physiological process that has evolved and is still with us. Now, all of the things that have, that have evolved and are still with us over that long of a period of time means that they have given us some sort of a survival advantage, right? That's why they are here. And the ability to experience stress has kept us as a species alive for a very long time and keeps us thriving right now. It's, it's kind of how your body reacts to, to whatever it sees as a, as a threat, uh, whether it's a real threat or an imagined threat, that's where things get a little bit murky. But in general, you see a threat, you respond with that sort of a stress state that we're all familiar with, right? The agitation, the butterflies in your stomach, the, the thoughts going all over the place, the sweaty palms, whatever it might be. So that's all stress is. Now, if you take, well, first, if you think about life full stop, we've given the analogy of a shit, a shit bucket, right? Which is constantly being filled. And the other cool thing about the shit, well, not the cool thing, the other thing that we need to keep in mind about our shit bucket is that the, the tap doesn't always run smoothly, right? Every once in a while, somebody will come along and just open it all the way up. So you end up with a, with a, with a you know, a rain of shit, which you don't know is coming. And then somebody will come in and close it off and then open it up and close it and it'll just be happening all the time. And I think, Mike, you said it really well, is that behind the bar, front, you know, front-facing hospital on a busy Friday, Saturday night is actually this just kind of compacted, right? It's kind yeah. of an analogy of that kind of a life, just kind of on steroids and packed into this tiny little framework and shoved behind the bar. So... You know, learning or realizing that, that, that this is all it is and learning how stress operates or how stress happens in these environments is, is hugely important because then you can begin to, begin to develop an appreciation for the difference between you and your mind or, this, or, or what your mind does under stress, right? And then you start having that, you know, growing that space, if you will, between shit that happens and what you do about it, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. But, but, but the biggest tip, biggest tip, the, the, the kind of the, the best tip for me, the thing that I remind myself often when I find myself right now, for example, in our COVID situation, but also with various sort of, you know, in, at the moment pressured situations is feet on the ground. Like that's it. Just focus on your feet on the ground, right? Make sure that you always dial yourself to right here, right now, even for a second, just a split second. It can help you stop all of those mental projections, all of those... Uh, thinking traps that we fall into, which then leads to us feeling a bit more stressed than we need to be, right? So being able to handle that situation of that asshole coming out to the bar and giving you shit about, you know, the, oh, I want that whiskey on that shelf over there, you know, rather than just, well, slapping him or freaking out, you know, you're able to take a moment and see where your mind is going and then choose your own response. That's what you want to aim for. And that's kind of what I started off with really when, when we started talking is that is your responsibility for your own freedom to choose who you are and what you do. And that's kind of the coolest thing when it comes to learning to manage yourself, manage your stress and manage your resilience is that you're not only building your ability to handle tough situations, you're building your ability to be yourself, right? To choose who you want to be. That's kind of the trick. Yeah. Okay. Cool. As I, I guess that it comes across as not being phased by stress, but um, I, I guess probably one of the things I also wanted to bring up was um, maybe maybe people seem like they're not being phased by stress whatsoever, but um, first of all, is this possible? And second of all, like, is this does this mean they're more resilient than, than we are, I guess, is probably mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. way to word it. Is it 
Um, yeah. Do you think this is? Do you think this is actually a possibility? Uh, so, so not being phased by stress is. I, I, I guess it's a, it's a thing of definitions, but so the idea is that. Well, not the idea. The fact of life is that we will all be stressed by something, right? Now, as I said, people have different sized buckets, meaning that it may take more to phase you than to phase me. So to me, you might look like somebody who's not phased by stress, but maybe you're just not phased by shit that I'm phased. Maybe you need a bit more in your bucket to be phased, right? That doesn't mean that you're not going to be phased by stress. But the other, and I think really cool thing that you mentioned that is really important to keep in mind is that not being affected by stress does not make somebody resilient by default, right? So um, not ever experiencing stress. You may, you, know, you, may, you may be a lucky person who doesn't experience stress, who is just, you know, has the perfect life where, of life of luxury, which, you You've know. You've got like four buckets. Or something along those lines, them. right? So you're not experiencing <laughs> any sort of stress, yeah. which... Which does mean that you, will, you, might, you might be able to handle more or maybe you've never been in a situation that is actually stressful to you. you, know, you maybe you don't work hospital. Maybe you work some nice, cushy, I don't know, lifestyle of just imagination and you come and look at all these people stressing out. That doesn't by default make you resilient, right? Never having experienced stress, uh, stress whatever it might, might mean for you, doesn't make you resilient because you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And, and I think a, cool, a, a key distinction to make here is a difference between resilience and fragility. Now, resilience is this tendency that we're all going for, you know, being able to bounce back, to, to stand back up once you're hit, once you're down, once you've got a bit of pressure on you, to be able to manage the unpredictability of life, you know, to, to absorb those shocks that come at you. That's resilience. On the flip side is fragility. And fragility is well, not necessarily being able to handle those things that press upon you, but more specifically, fragility is, well, being breakable. And the best kind of visual for this is if you imagine uh, a porcelain teacup, right? A porcelain teacup sitting on a table that is, 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 not, is not broken. It's perfectly okay right? It hasn't had much stress in its life. It's just sitting there. It's chilling out. It's okay. It's perfect. It's beautiful. You bring it out when the special guests come along, but then you push it just a little bit and it will fall and crash, right? The first bit of stress it has experienced, it is broken to pieces, never to be put together again, right? So just because it hasn't been stressed before, it doesn't make it resilient, and that goes for people as well. Just because you haven't experienced stress before, it doesn't by default make you resilient, right? It may actually make you fragile because you don't know what's going to happen when you are under stress, which is why I would recommend for people to go out and find some fucking stress, right? Luckily for, luckily for most of us, we are all under stress most of the time in life, right? So maybe just start paying attention how, to how you respond to it and learn who it is that you are and what it is that you are, right? And build from there. Yeah. Do you, do you think build, we build better resilience on the whole if we kind of, I, I, I guess, take, took the time to take stock on, on your stressful experiences? Oh, um, absolutely. So yeah. Learning from them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, one of the kind of problematic things about stress and stressful experiences is that they can go under the radar we might end up not even noticing them or we may just be willing to forget about them once we've been through them. Probably a better way to go is take the time, sit down and work through them, 
right? Take stock, as you say, and learn from those experiences. Uh, because our mind is really, our mind really wants to protect itself. That's the whole idea. And thinking about these sorts of things is actually a little bit painful, right? It's not really the comfortable space to be. So you need to force yourself to sit down and do this in order to take learnings from it, right? And then you can learn how you respond that, and then you can learn how you might want to respond next time and have it front of mind. As, as you said, Laurie, earlier on, this is training, right? Nobody's born with holes in their bucket, right? <laughs> Nobody is. You need to train, and you need to train all the time to be able to drill some of them, right? And then on and on it goes and as, as I said before like the, the best way to start is just get curious about it because this is cool stuff like just the fact that your mind does shit that you're not aware of is actually really cool like there's, there's, there's a whole other person in there doing some weird shit <laughs> get to know it right just pay attention and get to know it it's really really interesting that's so fascinating um, that like, I mean, we could probably talk to you for hours and I know that you've got seminars that are like, we could, we literally could do hours worth of seminars with you. Um, and we've got a couple of them coming, but it was absolutely so fascinating to talk to you. It's such a cool perspective. I love like the no bullshit realness that you bring to the mental health space as well. It's, it's great. Um, and, and, and like, just even on that stress point, um, even like during your seminars, we've just kind of started running through them. You talk about a little bit how like stress can actually really bring us up and help challenge us. Uh, so it's, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of it because it actually adds color to our lives um, and, and having that perspective. But I mean, on top of this hour webinar, or this hour um, interview for Shift Notes, we will be doing some webinars with you. So there's going to be one on Thursday. Uh, let me just double check the date. Um, I think it's next Thursday, right? Thursday the 24th, so for Mental Health Week. So if you'd like to get involved in uh, Peter's Building Resilience Workshop webinar, we're doing a live one Thursday, 3 p.m. You can sign up. There's links on Facebook and Instagram. Um, if you're in Auckland, we'll also be doing a live in-person seminar with Peter. So once the restrictions start easing off, watch this space, follow us on Healthy Hospo, and you'll start to see uh, when we lock in our first in-person dates as well so thank you so much super fascinating to talk to you every time um, and i'm really happy we could get this out to the industry so thank you so much thank you guys it was awesome awesome morning thank to spend with you right thanks yeah. Peter. that's amazing cheers yeah thanks a lot all right guys see you all soon right okay. Bye -bye. Bye.